You may be seated. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to sing, the command to sing, those that have written the hymns of praise and psalms for us to sing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Open your Bibles with me this afternoon to Romans chapter 12 again, just to find ourselves a sentence there that we want to establish from the Bible to help us in finishing out the chapter next Lord's Day. Romans chapter 12. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Verses 17 through 21. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. These five verses teach us to love our enemies. And those enemies may range from the devil himself, although we're not to love him, but the devil behind the governments of this world and enemies that rise to persecute Christians on down to our own family members. And I don't want you to neglect the larger ones and the smaller ones, but these five verses are going to tell us to live peaceably with our enemies. And we, we don't want to recompense evil for evil to anyone. That would be vengeance. We're not to avenge ourselves, but rather to give place under wrath by not letting it control us. So that if we find our enemy hungry, we feed him. If he's thirsty, we give him drink. And we don't allow ourselves to be overcome of evil, thrown at us by someone else, but we overcome their evil with good. Much of these five verses rest on the foundation of this fact that is mentioned in verse 19, See, verse 17 says, don't recompense evil for evil. You don't have to punish someone that's doing you wrong. Verse 21 says, be not overcome of evil. That means don't let them so affect you that you give them back what they're giving you. And the middle verse, verse 19 says, avenge not yourselves. And the whole thing is based on this fact. God will revenge. God will avenge you. God will repay Therefore, if he's going to take care of that whole side of a relationship with enemies, then you should be able to pray for them, bless them, that curse you, and feed them if they're hungry, and give them drink if they're thirsty. Because of that foundational principle and truth of God's word, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So let's prepare for learning these five verses next Lord's Day by just looking at some examples in the Word of God that vengeance is His. Vengeance is mine. That's my part of the universe. That's my role in your relationship to enemies. You treat them well. You pray for them. You bless them. You show kindness toward them, and I will protect you. I will punish them. I will repay. 
I will not forget. I will take care of it. You don't have to take care of it. Human nature says, if I don't take care of it, they're going to keep on doing what they're doing. Well, they're going to keep on doing what they're doing no matter what you try. What you should do is the opposite of that. In spite of how they're treating me, I'm going to treat them this way. I'm going to treat them the Bible way. I'm going to overcome their evil with good. I'm going to love them more than I have been. And I'm talking about family members. It is so frustrating and so hurtful and so contrary to our Christian religion to have families getting upset with each other. And and so what if you're being mistreated by a family member? Overcome their evil with good on your part. Show them more goodness. Love them more. That's the commandment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it comes back to the fact that the Lord is going to take care of even family members that are wrong in the way they mistreat. It's not our place to do that. Of course, if we're in a position of authority with children at home under our authority and they're being disobedient, we are supposed to chasten them. But we are not talking about that at this moment. Let's find where this quote came from. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. One of the more famous verses in the history of America is Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35, where the Lord said, Through Moses, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Now you say, that's not exactly word for word. No, it isn't. That's why we have the Holy Spirit guiding New Testament penmen as well as Old Testament penmen. But notice, to me belongeth vengeance. That's vengeance is mine. And recompense. I will repay. What is recompense but repaying? This is where it came from. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Do you know how this verse is famous in American history? If I keep reading, you should know, their foot shall slide in due time. That's the text, and those are the six words that Jonathan Edwards took for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in 1741. But to me, the Lord says, belongeth vengeance and recompense. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is repeated in Psalm 94 and verse 1. It's repeated in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2. And the Apostle Paul will quote it again in Hebrews 10 and verse 30. And we will come upon that in a few minutes. God's vengeance may not come in the kind of vengeance or in the timing that you would like or that you think should happen to your enemies, but His ways are always right. His ways are better than your ways. And I'm not referring to Isaiah 55, 6-9 when I say that, but God's ways are perfect and just, and they're better than yours. When God exacts vengeance from a man or a woman or a situation, it's going to be better than you could have devised. He knows their worst fears that you do not know. He knows the inside of every man, and let him have his vengeance. Give that over to him so that we can take Romans 12, 17 through 21, and run forward in loving our enemies. This is the lesson. But we just want to take the vengeance as mine and get some comfort from it today. Our perspective of God is too finite. We can only see so far. We cannot see deep. We cannot see inside men. We cannot see inside circumstances as to what God is doing, so we must trust Him. If He said, vengeance is mine, that means it's, it's His bailiwick. 
He's the one in charge of vengeance. And if he says, I will repay, that doesn't mean he might repay. It means he will repay. So we trust him. God knows every man's fear, like I just said, better than you can know it. He can deal with men. In the past, and we should still understand this foundational principle to help us with a verse like Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. Or, I could say, let us use Ecclesiastes 5, 8 in light of this fact. This is the verse. Oh, this isn't the verse I want. Well, that's because I'm in Isaiah. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. We've quoted this many times as we look at governments around the world and our own government. If thou seest the oppression of the poor. So we are seeing an enemy of righteousness, an enemy of justice. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. Don't let that unnerve you. Don't let that bother you. Don't let that confuse you. Don't let that get you distracted into thinking you need to do something about it. Marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth. And there be higher than they. It doesn't matter how powerful the government is or how powerful the office is in a government that is working wickedness. God will judge them. God is greater than them. God is higher. This, this little verse produces so much peace in those that will believe it. Do you believe this verse? The news shouldn't bother you. What's going on in the world shouldn't bother you. We can go right ahead with the Apostle Paul and thank God for our rulers. We can thank God for our government. We can thank God for the liberties that we enjoy and leave the rest with Him. We can't put them out of power. We can't change them. But He can. And He will change them one way or another. So this is one way in which we use the words, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, but I have a better way that I want to use it. And let me turn you to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. The way that we're using it is to help us understand Romans 12, 17 through 21. Let me make it very practical right now. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me ask you this question. Do you trust God enough do you trust God so much that you can fulfill all your relationships according to His Word in spite of the way those people may treat you? Family, job, nation, neighbors, church, any business, anything you want to think about. Do you trust God enough that you will fulfill all the relationships according to His Word, just the way He's told you to treat everyone in your marriage, in your family, on the job, in the nation, in the neighborhood, in the church. Do you trust Him so much that you can just go ahead and expose yourself by loving them, even your enemies, even those that are misusing you, and show them goodness while they're showing you evil because you trust God that much? That's the lesson. That's Romans 12, 17 through 21, and it's right here. And it's in a passage that I hope will make it more practical. Let's start reading at verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's talking about employment. It's talking about your job. It's talking about being abused on the job. It's talking about being mistreated on the job. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. This is the Christian religion. 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. That's the character of your boss. He's a froward man or woman. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, even though you are suffering and you're suffering wrongfully, you endure that grief because you have a conscience toward God who has told you to be in subjection with all fear, even to a froward boss. I want you to understand these verses. They are so important to our religion. Verse 20, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. See, this is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God right here. That you cheerfully endure grief on the job, suffering wrongfully, even though you've done a job well, they, they don't keep their word towards you. They honor someone else over you. They promote someone past you. And so forth and so on. You do it out of conscience toward God. This is acceptable. Verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Because it's our religion started by our master that he's about to describe to us. Because Christ also, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Was that doing a good job? It says, when ye do well, in verse 20. Well, did Jesus do well? He never sinned. There was no guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. He didn't revile back. When he suffered, he threatened not. Could he have issued some pretty decent threats? But, but here's what I want. Look at this. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Jesus practiced it for you to follow his example. That's what I read all these verses for, was to work up to this point right here in the last part of verse 23, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and going to the cross, the Bible tells us in one place, Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So that's from the positive reward of what's held out for him. And if you do well on a job where you are not paid what you should be paid on earth, does Colossians chapter 3 tell us that you will be rewarded with the inheritance in a day to come by another master? Does it say that? It says that. That's the positive standpoint of how you behave yourself on the job. The Lord Jesus Christ behaved himself perfectly, went on trial for the joy that was set before him for doing it, but also, but also, because he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, because he believed, Romans twelve nineteen from Deuteronomy 32, 35, referred to in Psalm 94, 1, Nahum 1, 2, and Hebrews 10, 30. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. On the cross, he could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He already knew what was going to happen to the Jewish nation. He didn't, he didn't do any of it there. He didn't threaten them with what was coming. He had preached it to his disciples. 
If you go look for the passages where the destruction of Jerusalem is described, it was telling his disciples that it was going to come to pass and what they should do about it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jesus committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Let's think about some examples. Look at Matthew chapter 25. The question of the study is, do you trust God enough to fulfill all relationships according to his word in spite of how they're treating you? Does everyone in here believe that? If your children are offending you, are you going to pour out more love by being better parents toward them? If your spouse is not loving you the way you wish or you think or the Bible describes your spouse should love you, are you going to punish them by trying to withdraw some of your affection and favor toward them? Or are you going to bury them in kindness? This is our religion. This is Romans 12, 17 through 21. It extends from how we, how we treat those who hate our church, those who may hate us, all the way right down into our marriage. As I will show you. But this is to comfort you. This is to teach you that you can commit yourself to him that judgeth righteously like the Lord Jesus Christ does, did. This is to teach you that you can believe vengeance is mine, I will repay so that you don't ever have to think about that part of your relationship with someone mistreating you. I need to punish them back. That's the flesh. The spirit says God's going to take care of them. I am going to love them anyway. Do we, do we have the lesson? It's very simple. But it's one of the hardest things to ever put into practice consistently. And may God give us the strength by His Holy Spirit to put it into practice. We have enemies called devils. The devil and his angels, they're described as in the Bible. But vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now do they know that they're going to get repaid? They know. Do you know? If they know, we should know. And the Bible tells us so in Matthew 25 and verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand. This is Jesus Christ the King in the day of judgment speaking to the goats on his left hand. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God has prepared fire, flaming fire, for the devil and his angels. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is his greatest enemy. This is the greatest enemy of the people of God. This is the roaring lion that walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This is the enemy of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has a fiery furnace prepared for the devil and his angels. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Can you leave it there? And can we go forward trusting the Lord that he judgeth righteously? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Are you tired of reading all the hatred against the Word of God and the hatred against Bible Christianity that is in the world today? Well, there's an answer for it. We should just turn it over to the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It shouldn't frustrate us. It shouldn't, it shouldn't disturb us because the Lord will take care of His enemies. Let's start at verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 1. And to you who are troubled, and they were troubled like we're not troubled. They physically paid a price of persecution in the city of Thessalonica. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking 
taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. If you're a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in verse 10. And those in verses 7 through 9 are our enemies. They make fun of us on the internet. They make fun of us in the newspapers. They make fun of us in school. They make fun of us in the media. They make fun of us in Washington, D.C. Rest with us. The apostles had been troubled all their lives by the enemies of the gospel. Rest with us. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming from heaven and vengeance is His. He will repay. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I hope you can understand that there was a foundational point and principle made in Romans 12, 17 through 21 that you need to get a grip of, then the rest of it's easy. As soon as you can turn over vengeance, then you won't be thinking about vengeance. Your vengeance is so pitiful. You know, somebody didn't do such and such for me. Well, I'm going to show them. I'm not going to do such and such for them. Where did that come from? That's being overcome of evil. So someone's treating you evilly, then you want to treat them back evilly. Let someone treat you evilly and return good upon them. Listen, it's pleasing to God and it heaps coals of fires on their head and it's the true Christian religion. It shows a work of grace in your heart that you cannot show otherwise. If everyone was treating you correctly, properly, and well, how would you ever show such a work of grace until you're being mistreated? That's why it's said in 1 Peter 2, if you're buffeted for your fault, so what? It's when you do well and you suffer for it. Look forward to the opportunity of some sort of an enemy. I'm calling all kinds of people enemy, right? I'm calling your spouse an enemy when they do something towards you that hurts. Do you respond by saying, well, if that's the way she wants it, I can show her how I can ignore her for a few days, and we'll see how she likes that. Where did that speech come from? Jesus would say, you know not what spirit you're of. That's of the devil. Our religion is, you know what? She's probably treating me the way I deserve. And I've probably hurt her in the past, so I'm going to see if I can overcome it with good. Let's see if I can bury her with kindness. You say, that that would take a lot to do that. No, it wouldn't. Jesus, the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that is what the Bible teaches. And we should show it toward all. I just want to get right down into your marriage because that's up close and personal and I'm going to show you some examples from the Bible. The Lord takes care of every marriage. And so if you know that the Lord's going to take care of your marriage, even your marriage, then you should be able to just pour out your affection on your spouse no matter how they're treating you. If the Lord takes care of father-children relationships or father-in-law, anybody know where I'm going with that one? Child relationships. Then you should be able to just say, you know what? I don't care how my father-in-law treats me. I'm going to love him. I'm going to honor him. Because the Lord's going to take care of him. And it's not so much that we're glorying in the Lord taking care of him. It's just getting that part of the relationship out of the way. I'm not going to take any vengeance. There's just a lot of peace in that, brethren. You know, we don't have petition signing drives or anything like that because of Washington, D.C. We just turned over the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of everything that's going on up there. The Lord's going to take care of all these 
uh, the, the humanists that are, have infected our media and our educational system and the entertainment industry. The Lord's going to take care of all that. Let's just worry about the things that we can affect and influence. We're in Hebrews 10. This is a very much misunderstood verse, but I'll, I'll comment very briefly on it. Verse 26. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. This is Hebrews 10.26. This is a particular generation of a particular kind of people that are being addressed in this 26th verse. It is not written to you. It is written to Hebrews. That's why the book is entitled Hebrews. And it is written to the Hebrews of Paul's generation that are about to be burned up in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's how the verse is to be understood. And the sin, if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, is to turn from the truth and go back to Moses' system of religion of the Jews. You know, most 99% of Christians do not know what Hebrews 10.26 is talking about. They read it and they think, that's a presumptuous sin. I've committed a presumptuous sin. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. I'm going to hell. Lord, Jesus said he'll lose none of them. This isn't talking about that at all. This is talking about the day approaching. Can you see the last few words of Hebrews 10.25? Why is it called Hebrews? Why is, it, why is it written to the Jews? Why is Paul addressing to the Jews? Watch, watch when we read forward. This is, this is learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is being baptized. Baptism is mentioned up there in verses 22. 22 is in, that has baptism. Our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience by the blood of Christ. And so these are Jews that have learned all about the Christian religion. They've embraced it. They've been baptized. They've had communion. Then they go back to the Mosaic system of worship to protect themselves because they're being persecuted. So when they go back, they go back to animal sacrifices. If you go back to animal sacrifices because you have turned away from the knowledge of the truth of the gospel in verse 26, what are you saying about the blood of Christ? You're counting it an unholy thing. As we're about to read, watch as we go forward. Verse 27, but a certain fearful, if you sin willfully, the sin that is in verse 26 is not a sin that you can commit. The sin in verse 26 is the Jews, the Hebrews, to whom Paul was writing, and that is turning from the knowledge of the truth of the gospel back to the Moses system of religion of the Old Testament. For, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. That is what these Hebrews could do by giving up the New Testament church, the New Testament gospel, and going back to the spiritless, bloodless, unsanctifying, ceremonial religion of Moses. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense. There's Paul quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 35 again, saith the Lord. And again, he quotes from another place, The Lord shall judge his people. And then verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the destruction of Jerusalem for those Jews. And if any of these Christians that Paul is addressing, he's exhorting them, Don't go back. Because if you go back, you're going to put yourselves in among a group of people that are going to be burned up by God's judgment upon the Jewish nation. Just think about the the heinousness of the crime you're going to commit 
by trotting underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant wherewith He sanctified you an unholy thing because you go back to animal blood. Don't have any more time with that particular point. All I want to say is, was there a whole nation that crucified the Lord of glory? Did those Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, Levites, Levites and priests and Herodians all unite themselves together against the Lord Jesus Christ? He committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. Was it okay? Did God take care of it in the long run? Because they knew not the day of their visitation is the description that the New Testament gives of why Israel and Jerusalem were destroyed. They knew not the day of their visitation. Jesus didn't have to threaten them or revile them when they reviled him. All he did was commit himself and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From his standpoint, for that sin, those Roman soldiers at that time, that was his attitude toward them. He showed us the perfect example of what we ought to do, and you let God take care of the rest. I hope you remember, I just gave you an explanation of one of the most difficult problem texts and passages in the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. It has three others, just like it in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6 is the worst one of all. It says, if, you, if we fall away, it is impossible to re, be renewed again to repentance. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 12, verses 26 through 28 are impossible except to start playing games with the Word of God, unless you know that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D., the Apostle Paul's warning, converted, baptized Jews from going back and giving up their first profession of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is that there were enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God certainly took care of them. The martyrs know this, don't they? Have they committed themselves to him that judgeth righteously? Do they cry out in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Lord, how long? How long until there's some vengeance? And he says, don't worry, it'll happen, but we need to get the rest of your brethren here first. Isn't that, see, we don't see that. All we can see is, it hurts so much, they burn me at the stake, Lord. They burn me at the stake. Well, there's some more brothers coming. Just hold on, hold on. Then you can go into the book of Revelation and read a passage like this. You want to try Revelation 18? Revelation 18, verse 6. Reward her, speaking of Babylon, the enemy of the church of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. Can you turn it over to a God that does that? The martyrs weren't smart enough to pray for that in Revelation chapter 6. They just said avenge us. They didn't say avenge us double, but God did. Do you understand where I'm trying to go with this sermon? Can we turn it over to the Lord? You know, we read things about our president. We read things about our Congress. We, re- we see things in the media. There are, there are people that get a, an, a, an audience and they're given a pulpit to say things against the Bible and against the Christian religion, against the things that we stand for. Abortion is protected and sodomy is promoted. And we see all this and we're frustrated. We're wondering, is, the, is there a God in heaven? There is a God in heaven. Vengeance is mine and I will repay. I want you to look at those distant, large enemies we have, and then just, we just keep getting closer and closer until ones that are very personal with us, we can still just turn them over to the Lord and love them. Turn them over to the Lord and love them. Did Egypt learn a lesson that they shouldn't have hurt Israel? Was vengeance the Lord's? What did, what did Pharaoh's servants come to him and say after about plague seven? We think that you ought to let them go. 
Do you not know that the nation's already been destroyed? Did they say that? Have you? I don't have time. Brethren, I have a lot of illustrations I want to give you. I can't turn you to all the verses. They said that to him. Was there a cry that went up from Egypt like there had never been a cry from any nation when they went into their beautiful little babies' bedrooms and found the firstborn in every home dead? Is There is a God in heaven that knows perfect vengeance. If you like the double of Revelation 18, think about what happened to Pharaoh and Egypt. How much of his army did he take into the Red Sea? His army. How many of his chariots? His chariots. Was he in there with them? Oh, yes, he was. Did God get himself glory over Pharaoh and his entire host? What was in the pockets, bags, wheelbarrows, and safes of Israel as they left Egypt? The wealth of Egypt. Is that pretty thorough? You think you can do better? What would you have done better? That is just marvelous in our eyes. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth, Higion, Selah. Proverb, uh, Psalm chapter 9 and verses 16 and 17. Oh, I just want you to take delight in the fact that God's going to take care of everything from the, let me do it this way, negative standpoint, and he's holding out a reward for you, and you can heap coals of fire on their head in the doing of it. Am I missing anything? If you love your enemies, he is going to take care of them, he is going to reward you, you're heaping coals of fire. Yes, there is one more. We are showing the religion of Christianity in a measure that you could never preach. It's got to be done in actions to love your enemies. It's just win, 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 win when we do it the Lord's way. And there's pleasure in doing it. And the Holy Spirit is pleased when you do it. Some of the most peaceful moments I have ever had in my life were praying for very specific enemies by name. And I have some. And I am no hero of the faith. The Lord Jesus Christ is the hero of the faith. But I can tell you from personal experience what I'm showing you from the Bible works. Lord, help us learn it even better. Did the Philistines learn that they shouldn't have mocked blind Samson? Do you want to hear about the vengeance is mine, I will repay? Every one of these examples that I give you should be thinking... How did God really show his vengeance? Well, it's in this little statement that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that in the day of his death, Samson killed more than in all of his life. Who, who designed that? Who made sure that the attendance that day in the temple of the Philistines was great enough that when Samson bowed himself with all his might between those two pillars, he wiped out more than he'd wiped out in his entire life? Why were they there making fun of Samson? Because he had been such a pain to them for the 20 years that he ruled, he judged Israel. What did he do in the end? More than he did during his life. Can you laugh with the Lord? Vengeance is mine. He does it better than we do. And I will repay. Not I might repay. Or if I remember what they did to you, I will repay. I will repay. What did Samson ask for that level of vengeance for? Two eyeballs. Will you allow me my strength one more time for my two eyes? Now the Lord had some other things involved because they were worshiping their gods, thinking their gods had given them the victory over Samson. But all Samson wanted was two eyes. Is that a decent trade? 
More than he'd killed in his entire life. You know, the last time he killed a thousand men with a jawbone of an ass, he was whipped at the end. You know, this time he just went to bed. The Bible's full of it. I, I just... So when I come to Romans 12, oh Lord, I understand. It's all in your hands. I don't have to worry about abortion. I don't have to worry about sodomy. They, they frustrate me in my flesh a great deal. And they frustrate my spirit in a certain way. But I don't have to worry about it. You're going to take care of all those things. And right down to personal relationships. Psalm 137. Uh, this is such a... Psalm 137. This is the most incor- politically incorrect passage in the Bible. Psalm 137. Let me read a little psalm. What is the title given to David as the psalmist of Israel? It's a word that starts with S. The sweet psalmist of Israel. This isn't very sweet. But it is sweet. How is it sweet? Because it's God's vengeance against the enemies of his church. And you've got to believe that. That he is not going to miss a single one. He does not miss anything. Did he miss a Hagar out in the wilderness? Thou God seest me. She couldn't believe it. He didn't miss a slave, black woman, thrown out, fired from her job that was an Egyptian. Thou God seest me. Don't worry. That boy you're going to have, I'm going to make of him a great nation. You want to know how big Islam is today? That's his nation. And the nations of the Arabians. And the nations of the Middle East. It's from Ishmael. Don't worry. I'll take care of you and your boy. You go back and submit yourself. Could you go back and submit yourself? Just on and on it goes through the pages of Scripture. We trust the Lord. We do what he tells us to do toward our enemies. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They had just leveled the city of Jerusalem, raped the women, taken the children. Ferocious, horrible. There was no Jiva convention in those days as they destroyed Jerusalem. And now they're asking these captives in their 500 mile trek to Babylon to sing one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, though leveled to the ground, though despised by the enemies, these dear saints of God said, she is still the chief love and joy of my life. Now when, listen, there's a God in heaven. And he has an ear to the sighing of his people and the bondage of his people. And he hears these words. But they went on in their prayer to say this. Remember, O Lord, the psalmist goes on to say this. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. And that's without an I in there. That's an R-A-S-E. That's an R-A-Z-E. As we would write it today, that means level it even to the foundation thereof. The Edomites were neighbors. The Edomites were the Esauites. 
They were the Esau's that God hated. They were the Esau's that hated Jacob. They were the Edomites. And when they saw the Babylonians bring their great army in around Jerusalem, they just sat there cheering them on, reading the news every day. Level it! They hated Jerusalem. And the psalmist is reminding God of it. Verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Sorry for the long explanation on that, but I want you to understand there are people of God 400, 300, 500 miles from home on their trek to Babylon being mocked and ridiculed, but they expressed the love of their hearts was for a city that was leveled to the ground. If I ever forget thee, take away my ability to play any music. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I forget the joys of my church. And when a, when a cry like that goes up, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. So the psalmist steps in and says, the Lord will repay. We're 2,000 years this side of the cross. Did the Lord repay? Amen. Darius took the city in one night. And the impregnable queen city that would sit forever was taken in one night. I'm sorry that I have managed my time so poorly. I hope I've explained some passages of the Word of God to you. I have to move past a whole long list here and come down to some more personal ones. Did Nabal foolishly mock David? Did David need a little help? Was Nabal able to provide that help in the time of his sheep shearing? Had David protected Nabal's servants when they were out there in the woods and, and winter keeping his flocks. Did God, was vengeance the Lord's? The story goes like this. When the wine wore off after Nabal was drunk, the next morning his wife told him, I disobeyed you and I took a load of food to David. Oh, that would have been sweet, sweet music to a man's ears. I went and fed David and his men while you were having your drunken feast. What does the Bible say? His heart turned into a stone. And he got to live ten more days thinking about the fact that David was going to get his wife. And then he died. And then Abigail became David's wife. That is my God. He said, famous last words, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There's lots of runaway slaves these days. 1 Samuel 25. Who was David? The man after God's own heart, the anointed king of Israel. That's pretty personal, isn't it? Now we're, forget, forget armies, forget Babylonians. Nabal versus David. Thanks be to God for a wise woman that saddled her ass and got out there and spoke to David and stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. But see, he was wrong. He was wrong, and Abigail knew he was wrong, and when Abigail had told him what he was about to do, and that was to mar his reputation and put a blot on him that he wouldn't be able to easily get rid of, he, told, he thanked her profusely for saving him from doing what he would have done. That's in the flesh. We don't want to be like that, David. Because he didn't give him food, what was he going to go do? Kill everyone that pisseth against a wall. Those are the males. He was going to go kill every male that belonged to Nabal. 
Oh Lord, let us not be like David in that time. Let us be like David at other times. Did Absalom mock David? Taking his wives on the palace rooftop? Was it for David's sins? Did he get a little too much pleasure out of it? Even though it was punishment for David's sins, did God take care of Absalom? I want to tell you, when he was riding as fast as he could to get away, the limbs of an oak tree reached out and embraced his head and and pulled him up from the earth and left him dangling there. And I want to tell you, out of the thousands of men that were following David, the right man found him, Joab. Who, Who in the world arranged those circumstances? How often does a wise king's son who has ridden animals all his life run into an oak tree and get hung up between the heaven and the earth so he's dangling there, unable to protect himself, and the man that finds him is Joab? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now let me tell you of a different David. Oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. As a king, he was foolish. As a father, he was showing Romans 12, 17 through 21. Right. It was at the end of his life. Abigail was at the front end of his life. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord's able to teach us things in our lives so that we can see improvement even in David's life? Adonijah and Solomon. How good was Solomon when he was in the boxing ring? How about when he was sparring with Swords. No. Solomon was a guy of books. He was a mama's boy. He was a man of peace. He wasn't a warrior. Adonijah tried to take the throne from him. Did the Lord arrange for Adonijah not to be able to get the looks of Abishag off his mind? Did Solomon tell Adonijah, I will not kill thee for his sedition? Until... The Lord arranged for Adonijah to come and ask Bathsheba to go ask Solomon for Abishag. Then Solomon knew that the Lord had given him the perfect opportunity and something as a king he had to do, and he killed Adonijah's brother. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It was a no-brainer to the wise Solomon. It should be a no-brainer to you. As he sat there on his throne, he had put his mother at his right hand. He said, Mother, you can ask anything you want up to half the kingdom. She said, I want Abishag for Adonijah. He said he has just asked that for his own life. In one second, he knew that God had given him the perfect opportunity. Shimei cursed David wickedly. David knew that he was a sinner. So you know what David promised Shimei? I will not kill you. Should you kill a man that curses the king? Without a doubt. What did his nephew say to him? Let us go over and take the dead dog's head off. Is that how you feel sometimes when somebody's mistreating you? I'd like to go over and take the dead dog's head off. Do you get excited and say amen to a passage of scripture like that? Let us be careful. Do you know what David had to say about those nephews of his? You're too hard for me. We don't want to be too hard for David or the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Shimei cursed David wickedly. So God gave Solomon great wisdom to tell Shimei, if you will never leave the city of Jerusalem, I will never kill you like my father promised to you. But if you leave, if you ever step out of the city of Jerusalem, I'll kill you. Well, who caused 
Three years later, two of Shimei's servants to run away and to leave the city where they went and hid. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Solomon had his guys watching Shimei every day of his life. The, The servants ran away. Shimei went to bring them back. He left the city of Jerusalem. Solomon called him in and said, I made a fair deal with you. You should have been killed by my father. I let you live. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That was years later. Years later after cursing David. But God does not forget. And this is not for us to glory in God's vengeance so much as for us to put vengeance in God's lap and leave it there. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. But I'm trying to point out that he's thorough. I will repay. Joseph's brethren abused him. It was ten against one. Was there a great reversal of fortune? Did they come in and have to beg at his feet? Did he play with them for a number of years? Lovingly. They deserved every bit of it and a whole lot more, but he was very gentle with them. When Judah finally stepped forward and gave him the sob story of what was going to happen to Jacob, if Benjamin was held back, remember he couldn't handle it any longer, he ordered his servants out, he broke into tears. Okay, i got to read this one to you. This is family. We're talking about family. We're talking about family. We're, getting, we're just coming down, 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 closer and closer to home. And this is now Genesis chapter 45. Verse 1 says, Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. He didn't want any Egyptians in there. Verse 2, he wept aloud. Verse 3, I am Joseph. Verse 4, come near to me, I pray you. I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. How gracious can you get? That's Joseph. That's why I preached on the character of Joseph a number of years ago. That's character we want right there. Come near. I forgive. Don't be grieved. It's ancient history. I forgive you. Look at how God's used this. So when your enemy comes, did he feed him? At his table. Did he give them drink? In silver goblets. This is Joseph. Oh, can we be like Joseph? Laban wasn't a very good father-in-law. Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel. When he woke up the morning after his honeymoon night, who did he find in bed with him? Leah. How many times does the Bible say his wages were changed by his father-in-law? Ten times. Did Jacob do okay honoring his father-in-law? When he left town, had there been a transfer of assets? Had there been a wire transfer? But it went through watering troughs. And so that he had the... Did Laban's other sons know that uh, their assets were very much less than they had been? And that Jacob had it all? The long explanation is a wonderful explanation to read about God taking care of Jacob. When Laban came roaring after him when he snuck away, you know, Jacob was known for that. 
when he tried to get away from Laban, and Laban came after him with men to do serious damage to him, did he have a dream that night? Was it, was it a real dream? Was it one that he still remembered in the morning? Was it God telling him, you're not going to touch him? You're not going to do him any harm? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Oh, I hope you can learn to trust the Lord. Was Rachel ever an enemy of a sister? Did a sister have to pay to get her own husband in bed with her? I want to make this close. I want you to think about the Bible. In a, when we read the Bible, do you read it carefully to think about the lessons that are being taught? Vengeance is mine. I will repay is the lesson for this assembly. Leah hadn't been gifted in her appearance. Rachel had been. Rachel mistreated Leah. Rachel was haughty. Rachel was domineering and oppressive even to Jacob. So what did God do? God took her womb and did this to it. And God did this to Leah's womb. So that Leah had six children before Rachel had hers and a daughter. Six sons and a daughter. And you ought to read their names. Look at Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. Because Leah understood what was happening. And can you understand what happens and what God will do if you will put your trust in Him? Genesis 29. Verse 31, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. See, I'm not making this up. I want you to read the Bible. When the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. This is Jacob's firstborn son. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Notice how personal this is. Feel her grief. Feel her trouble. Feel her thanksgiving that God saw, God knew, and God had made the difference. And she gave God all the credit. And look at her heart as to what she wanted. She wanted a husband to love her a little bit. But Rachel stole it all. And wouldn't share it. She wasn't the one that wanted to be in that tent the first night. Her father had done that. But the Lord looks out for all those circumstances. And Leah just kept kicking out tribes of Israel. Tribes of Israel. Look at these names. Verse 33, And she conceived again, and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated. Notice the personal aspect of this vengeance on the Lord's part. He hath therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. The vengeance is going against Rachel. See, this is blessing on Leah. But every time, every time Leah would be getting pregnant, walking around in her maternity dress, guess who had to see it and grieve over it? Selfish little Rachel. You say, well, if I was married to a polygamous polygamous man, I might be selfish too. Not back in those days. Not like this. And she conceived again, verse 34, and bare a son. Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Notice, she feels like she's just getting this great dowry so that Jacob will appreciate her. And again in verse 35, then you come over to verses 17 through 21 in, verse, in chapter 30, and you've got more of the same. Look at Deuteronomy 21, where the Lord even put this kind of vengeance into His law. Deuteronomy chapter 21. 
Deuteronomy 21, verse 15. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated. Deuteronomy 21, 15, last clause. And if the firstborn son be hers that was hated. Uh-oh. A man's got two wives. He loves one of them. He hates the other. The one that he hates has a, ba- has a son first. Verse 16, Then it shall be, when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. There is God, even in his law, producing vengeance for a hated wife against a loved wife and the husband for making that distinction. One more, Hannah. You know all about Hannah. We've preached about her recently. Hannah had an adversary, the Bible says, that provoked her greatly. Her name was Peninnah. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So how did, you know, Hannah maintained being a good wife. As far as we understand from that context, she treated Peninnah properly. She loved the Lord. She went to the Lord and she said, if you'll just give me a son, I'll give him back to you. If you'll just honor me a little bit. Well, did the Lord have any vengeance on Peninnah for provoking her? Because she had Samuel, and as I have said many times, Peninnah had to read the newspaper about Samuel for the rest of her life, and no one ever read about Peninnah's children. Then, Hannah had three more sons and two more daughters for Elkanah. That is the Lord, and his doings are marvelous in our eyes. So my question, as I close, same question I started with, do you trust God enough? Do you trust God enough to fulfill all your relationships according to his word, regardless of how others treat you? Spouse, children, parents, and other relatives, father-in-laws, employers, church members, neighbors, businesses, government. Do you trust the Lord enough that you can go ahead and do exactly what he says toward them, even when they're mistreating you, because you know that it's the right thing to do, because you know that he's going to take care of them, vengeance is mine, I will repay, because you know that he's going to reward you, and because you know that it demonstrates the Christian religion better and glorious and shows a work of grace in your life. Jesus, Jesus showed it perfectly in 1 Peter chapter 2, because he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. My dear brethren, forgive all men. Live peacefully with all. Keep in perfect integrity in all your relationships, trusting God for any equity that needs to be reestablished. Parent or child, spouse or employer, enemy or government, member or neighbor, leave all in God's hands. Go out of your way to repay kindness and good to every person or every act of evil that they do towards you. Never say, I want to teach them a lesson. Unless it's someone under your direct authority that needs it. Under your direct authority, not your indirect authority. I will give them some of their own medicine. These are all words from hell. These are words from David's nephews, the sons of Zeruiah. These are words from James and John when they were not in the right spirit. And Jesus said, you know not what spirit you're of. Do not say, I'll see what they think 
when I treat them the same way they've treated me. Or if I don't punish them, they're going to continue to run over me. Or if I stand down like the pastor preaches, they're going to think I'm a compromiser or a weakling. Those are not, ought not to be the thoughts. You're supposed to be a weakling. I am a little child. We're just going to love our enemies. And we're going to let the great God of heaven take care of all of them. And we're not going to worry about it. We're going to leave, it in, leave that all in his hands. May the Lord bless us to understand Romans 12, 17 through 21. And whatever enemy that may be, or whoever you think is mistreating you a little, pour out your love upon them. Love them to death. Show them good. Overcome their evil with good. Trust the Lord. He reward, he'll reward you. You're pouring coals of fire on their head. Vengeance is his. He will repay. It's all in the Lord's hands. The word of God is perfect. It's win, 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 win when we do it God's way. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.